Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed talks about the history of Juneteenth. On June 19, 1865, Major General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston and informed enslaved African Americans that the Civil War had ended and slavery was abolished in Texas. A native Texan, Gordon Reed recalls Texas history along with her own family stories in a new book on Juneteenth. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Harvard professor and Pulitzer Prize-winning historian of the early American Republic and did groundbreaking work on Sally Hemings that changed our understanding of Thomas Jefferson, joins us this week for Q&A to talk about her new book on Juneteenth. Professor Gordon-Reed, this is a very different kind of book for you. It's a small volume, about 140-plus pages, and essays. Tell me about this project and how it got started. Well, my editor has, Bob Wilde, has wanted me to do a book about Texas for a long time, but we were thinking about doing a big book, and I'm still thinking about doing a big book about the history of Texas and slavery. And we talked about the idea of doing that using my family as sort of a a template, as sort of a hook to lay things on and to move forward with uh, this history of Texas. We decided after I did um, an essay for The New Yorker uh, about Juneteenth, the holiday Juneteenth, and after I had done a five book review of books about Texas for The New Yorker review of books that we might do something smaller try a different tack. Instead of doing a conventional large history that I would do, something much more personal and something that would be accessible to to large number of, of people, of audiences of all ages, and just to try something different. This is a kind of writing that I've wanted to do a long time, and so I got a chance to experiment a bit. What is essay writing like, and how does it differ from your narrative prose? Well, it's you know, it's more about yourself. It's more essay. Typically, it, people say it means an attempt at something to talk about a particular idea. I do have uh, a bibliography at the end, but it's not weighted down with footnotes with uh, nonfiction type things. You're typically historical works. Every other it could be every other sentence, every paragraph has is full of endnotes to to prove what it is that you're saying. These are largely my views about things. I do have some historical things that I make reference to, but it's much more personal. It's much more about my thoughts and not synthesizing other people's thoughts and other people's ideas about things. So it's it's very much me, I would say, much more so than, well, I guess all of our writing is, is us, but this is self-consciously my thoughts and my take on things. I do want to uh, plunge into the history more in more detail that you tell in the book of Juneteenth and, and what brought it about. Uh, because for some people, it's really uh, not something that they're deeply familiar with. Um, so mm-hmm. let me start with the, the, the actual Juneteenth commemoration. What does it commemorate? Well, it commemorates June 19th, 1865, when uh, Major General Gordon Granger comes to Galveston to announce that after the Confederate Army had surrendered, I mean, Lee, the Army of Northern Virginia had surrendered in April, uh, but the Army of the Trans-Mississippi had continued to fight. And they, at the beginning of June, decide to surrender. And then Granger goes to Galveston to make the announcement that slavery is over in Texas. And from that day on, I think some people consider it the sort of largest continuous celebration of, of of, a, you know, of emancipation 
in the country. Other people dispute that, but this is a very well-known one, at least for Texas, and it's become well-known in recent years, a continuous celebration from that time period of this particular day that ends legalized slavery. It didn't end all the problems for Blacks in Texas, but it ended legalized slavery. And it was shortened. First, it was called Emancipation Day, and then it was June 19th, and then it was shortened to Juneteenth. The National Archives holds the original General Order Number no. 3. went back to look at it online, and it is brief. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to actually put it on uh, a graphics for our audience so they can see the simplicity but also the complexity of what it did. Mm-hmm. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. But it went on to say, the freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They will not be allowed to collect at military posts, and they will not be supported in idleness, either there or elsewhere. The National Archives, in describing the document, says it was critical to expanding freedom to enslaved people, but the racist language used in the last sentences foreshadowed that the fight for equal rights would continue. Uh, Do you agree with their assessment that the language is racist? Well, idleness. People complained. One of the things that people said of uh, justified slavery is that black people would not work if they did not, uh, if they were not made to work under slavery. But I think the more the thing that I focus on is his notion, and he didn't really have to say this, this notion of absolute equality uh, between the former enslaved and former enslavers, which was a pretty bold statement to make. Uh, given the circumstances that they were in. And that, I think it's that what, that is what actually inflamed more than, well, obviously the end of slavery inflamed them as well, but certainly this notion that blacks and whites were going to exist on an equal plane of humanity inflamed a number of whites in the area. Talking about idleness and not congregating with uh, the army is because one of the things that had happened is that enslaved people, when they heard about the Emancipation Proclamation and as the, the war effort Uh, went forward, a lot of enslaved people left the plantations and they would join armies. uh, They would join along with the armies who were marching through um, the South. And yeah, I mean, that you could take it that way. But to my mind, the most important and the most incendiary language in some ways was this notion of equality, of them existing in equality with their former enslavers. You tell readers that the Juneteenth Proclamation was necessary because of the long history of of Texas and its plantation culture. Uh, And you write that culturally over the years, the image of Texas has really been that of the strong white man, the cowboy, the rancher, the oilman. What is Texas's reality historically? Well, Texas's reality is that Stephen F. Austin, the father of Texas, uh, was given the right to bring Anglo settlers into Texas by the governor of Mexico with the idea of the idea was to to have them be a bulwark against the Comanche and other indigenous people who were fighting for this land. And they were welcomed at first and they wanted to bring obviously the people who they enslaved. I mean, these were people from Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi. And certainly as the war advanced, a lot of people escaped into Texas with their enslaved people. So the expectation was that they were entering a place where slavery would be the basis of of the society, the labor pool of the society. So East Texas uh, is very much like the Old South. When people think of Texas, they think of 
uh, I talked about one of my classmates asking me when I was in college, you know, what was it like to live near the desert? Well, you know, Texas is a huge state. And if you look at it, a topographical map, you'll see that the east part of Texas, the eastern part of it is green. It's a pine forest and it is fertile farmland. And the people who were coming from these other deep southern states wanted to extend the cotton empire into Texas. Cotton and sugar cane, the kinds of the crops that were grown there that could be shipped out of Galveston. So the real history is, and this was the most populous part of the state, has it largely been the most populous part of the state. The real history is of plantation slavery, a plantation slave society. Not to say that the West is important, and it is important, and oil men and cattle ranchers and those things are important as well. And Blacks actually did some of that, that too. And cowboys were Black. A number of Black people were cowboys. But the, the real basis of the state, the reason that it, you know, it sort of raised on Detra was to create a part of a cotton empire. And that's kind of forgotten. You hear problems from Texas, racial problems. And because people have this idea that Texas is the West, and I say Texas is, has been constructed as white man, people may be confused about why these issues are are pertinent why why it matters and this is a part of a long history of 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 a state that has a racial hierarchy um that you know from the very beginning saw african american people in some ways as having a very very limited role beyond that of being enslaved and we're talking about the history of texas and the fallout from that is still very much present in, in reading your, your essays on the early history of Texas, I was particularly struck by this paragraph, and it resonated with me because of our year of COVID. Uh, we, you wrote, we think our society is uniquely complicated today, but it's hard to fathom this world of colliding cultures, languages, religions, differentials of power, with few restraints on how power could be deployed, all of this taking place when people had no understanding of or capacity to deal with even the greater powers in their world, bacteria and viruses. Yes, yes. I mean, it's just, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to ask you to tell us more about that. No, it's just, we think of the simpler times, the past were simpler times, but they weren't. I mean, if if people could get a cut and it could turn septic and they could die. I mean, women died died in childbirth. You had uh, a place where there were all these different indigenous uh, uh, Indian groups that were there. And you know, this Hispanic culture, Latino culture, Anglo culture, all of these things in one place. And they were trying to, they were making this society. It's very, very complicated. Uh, and it's certainly much more complicated than the story of just cowboys and Indians that, that and Texas and cattle ranchers. And so making this culture was a difficult thing to do. And particularly when uh, a lot of these people were, these people were certainly in opposition to one another enslaver and enslaved and uh, Latino and Anglo uh, settlers and indigenous people. So we've always been, Texas has always been a multicultural place. You talk about six flags over Texas, different influences, different countries and different, you know, values all sort of melted together. And it's not, it's not just a white a European culture. It was all European Anglo culture, I should say, because obviously Hispanic culture is Spanish culture is European as well, but not not a British culture. And when we the way we think about Texas, when people see it just as a cowboy. 
Much of the modern-day uh, ethos of Texas seems to center around those years as an independent republic, which began in 1836. And the slogan, Remember the Alamo, is still heard around Texas today. What was mm -hmm. that fight for independence really all about? Well, it was about a number of things. I mean, at the heart of it was a concern about the Spanish, uh, the Mexican uh, dislike of slavery. They had outlawed slavery, and they sort of looked a different way uh, look, look the other way about slavery in Texas, in the Texas province. Uh, but there were colliding languages, different, you know, religions in some sense. It was a cultural difference, but it was a difference. The main difference was this concern about the possibility that slavery would be outlawed. As I mentioned before, a number of people who were coming to Texas didn't want to make that kind of investment in being there because you have to clear land and uh, plant crops and you know harvest crops and so forth, and they wanted to make sure that their property interest in African American enslaved people would be protected, and they they thought that the Mexican government was somewhat unsound on this on this question. Now, they did suspend the Constitution, and that was a provocation as well, um, and the concern that there was too much. This, these are these are notions that are, are based in federalism, the idea that uh, they did not want a distant government telling them what to do, but they particularly didn't want them to tell them what to do about the issue of slavery. So that was sort of at the heart of all of this. And not to say it was the only thing, but it was a huge part of all of it. And the Constitution, the Republic of uh, the Constitution of the Republic of Texas makes that plain. The United States Constitution kind of dances around all of this, talking about you know, persons held to service, and we know what they're talking about, but they didn't want to say slave, or you know, we're certainly not enslaved people, but slaves. But the uh, African Americans, that's not mentioned in the United States um, uh, Constitution as well, or blacks. Uh, but the Texas Constitution is explicit about this because even 1836, there were rumblings in the rest of the Union about this question of whether the Constitution protected slavery or not, with Southerners saying it did and Northerners saying it did not, or that there were ways to, to construe it as not protecting it. And the people in Texas wanted to be clear about this, uh, not just to the Mexican government, but to anybody, to all who could see that the Republic was going to be about slavery. And it explicitly provides for slavery. It prevents um, the emancipation of enslaved people uh, you know, with, uh, or the without permission with, or African-Americans can't come to the state, uh, to, excuse me, to the Republic without permission. Uh, they could not be citizens. They could never be citizens. So, you know, it's interesting because people think about uh, our discussions about race today as though this is some kind of preoccupation that we just thought up. But this stuff is in the document itself. And you have to grab, you can't read the document without seeing that and grappling with it. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a tough thing. And I, I talk about this in the book. It's an interesting position for African-Americans to be in, Black Texans to be in, to be asked to remember the Alamo and remember the fight for the Republic when the Republic had as one of its goals and had as part of its founding documents, 
the maintenance of racially based slavery and saying that African American uh, African Americans can't be citizens. So, you know, it's it's an odd thing to celebrate, and it's it's a tough part of the, the way that we have to to grapple with this or think about this is what do we make of this? How do you how do you deal with uh, a, a an effort that was ultimately antithetical to the interests of of black people? To underscore for our viewers the exact language from the Texas Constitution, Republic of Texas, Congress shall pass no laws to prohibit immigrants from bringing their slaves into the republic with them. And later on, no free person of African descent in whole or part shall be permitted to reside permanently in the republic without the consent of Congress. Just two of the provisions uh, that highlight the sentiment that you talked about. So if we get go back to the uh, Juneteenth proclamation, why did it take Texas so long to acknowledge the end of the Civil War? Well, because the Confederate Army kept fighting. Um, they didn't give up. Just Lee, did, Lee surrendered, but they kept fighting. And in fact, uh, they won the last battle, the last skirmish or whatever of the Civil War, uh, was won near Brownsville. Uh, the Confederates won, but they surveyed the situation and realized that overall there was nothing more to be done. And that's when they decided to surrender. So the military effort kept going on and the effects of the Emancipation Proclamation could not go into, could not, could not go into effect uh, until uh, the Union Army had taken control of the area. And that didn't happen until uh, the Army of the Trans Mississippi surrendered in in this particular in this particular area, so it it was a delayed response, fighting on, and I talk a little bit in the book about you know how you know, sort of speculated in a way, and other people have said this as well, that uh, the fact that they held out for so long, the fact that they won the last battle, the fact that they had been a republic, made white Texans even more. Uh, hostile in some ways, more recalcitrant once uh, the the war effort was over and once emancipation uh, came to uh, to to, to the state of Texas. Well, in 1865, not only did this uh, general order number three happen, but it was also the year the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was passed mm-hmm. and ratified. So it became the law of the land that slavery was outlawed. How did Texans respond to all of this? Well, I mean, white, I mean, Black Texans celebrated, and I talk in a little bit in the book about how this, again, started from the very beginning. They actually knew before Granger made this pronouncement what was going to happen. Uh, There were rumors about it uh, in Galveston and other places. Port cities are places where lots of information is is, uh, passed back and forth through people who are traveling from one port to another. Uh, Black Texans celebrated. Uh, Many white Texans responded to those celebrations with violence. Um, There are stories about people who were whipped because they uh, celebrated uh, the end of of slavery. Um, There are accounts of just uh, unleashing a torrent of violence on the freedmen. Someone talks about a person recounted uh, coming to to an area and finding almost 30 uh, bodies of black people, men, women, and children hanging from trees, uh, talks of you know bodies in the river. Once blacks ceased to be property and once whites lost their control over them, a number of whites 
responded with extreme hostility. So they, and they tried as much as they could to put, keep things as they were. And in fact, uh, a number of people through force were kept, uh, were threatened and were kept working on, because the Union Army couldn't be everywhere. He didn't, Granger, and Granger was only there for a few months, and then uh, and the Freedmen Bureau opens, and there were other troops, but they, Texas is huge, so they couldn't go all over even East Texas to, um, to enforce these uh, order, this order. Uh, but the Freedmen Bureau was designed to make sure that contracts were fair and that people were treated fairly, but they had a they didn't have the reach that was needed. They didn't have the resources that were needed to do it. So you can sort of imagine this somewhat abrupt in a way, even though I, people had been anticipating that this would happen, but this change of circumstances where you first had legal control over people to a situation where you didn't. And you know, with the predictable results that there was recalcitrance and uh, efforts to try to keep things as near to slavery as they could. How soon after 1865 did Juneteenth become a commemorative date? Well, you know, it's, as I said, they, people started right away celebrating in churches, a sort of an annual celebration. And in the 1870s, for African-American men in Houston bought property and created something that was called Emancipation Park that became for the specific purpose of celebrating Emancipation Day. And blacks from within Houston and other places as well would come to Emancipation Park. You know, most people celebrated as, as I did growing up as a child um, at, at home. You know, there were you know, barbecues, you know, getting together with family. It was sort of a family day, a family and friends day. So the commemoration, as far as we can tell, the commemoration started immediately and kept on. And eventually, in some places, larger cities moved to parks so that people could get together on a larger scale. And keep in mind, this is happening. I mean, this Emancipation Park is uh, put in place in the 1870s. So it's still very early on, still with a lot of hostility around, but people nevertheless made the effort to, uh, to commemorate this day. Over the next decades, you write about how Juneteenth waxed and waned, uh, but over time, it began being picked up by more and more states. And now I think the total is 48 states plus the District of Columbia recognize officially Juneteenth. What is that all about, do you think? Well, I think it started out, I wondered about this. I talk a little bit about my feelings when I first find this out going to college, that there were other people who were celebrating this. And I thought this was a holiday that was about black Texans in particular. And, and then when they made it a state holiday in Texas in, in 1980, it became about Texans in general. But I think what happened, what gets going is that there's a Texas diaspora, uh, blacks who left Texas and went mainly West, um, began to you know, sort of took the, the holiday with them. And wherever they went, they took the holiday with them. And that's how it became known to other people. And then I think there was a yearning, or evidently uh, there was a yearning to have some day to settle upon to commemorate the end of slavery, because we really don't have one. I mean, there are a number of candidates. You mentioned 
uh, the end of, of the ratification of the 13th Amendment, and that would have been the end of December 1865. But not many people know that. Uh, and that's the official, the legal end of slavery. What happens in Juneteenth is that it's the end, uh, it's the result of the end of the armed conflict uh, about slavery. The Confederate Army surrenders. Um, so people say maybe, you know, December 31st, or some people say January 1st, Emancipation Proclamation. Um, but people want someday to commemorate it. So this one is, it's a fun day. Uh, it's summer. It's Juneteenth is a great name for it. And I, I think the Texas diaspora did a, a, a good job of spreading this throughout the country and people adopting it as as a as a way of commemorating that particular day. But in your introduction, you uh, you admit to some mixed feelings about all of this. Yeah, yeah, I did have mixed feelings, and and you know, it's I got over them quickly because I realized that it's bigger than just Texans. It's about it. It makes sense that other people would fasten fasten upon this um, because it does commemorate the end of, of the struggle over it. Now, again, there's the legality. I'm a lawyer and I like laws and amendments and things like that. We can fixate on that. But I, I think it's such, it's taken on such a life of its own now that it makes sense to see it as a national thing is not just, and not keep it just for Texans. As you explained at the outset, this book is of essays that combines both the telling of history and personal memoir. Um, I heard you talk about the importance for historians of staying detached from the story that you were telling. How difficult was it for you to put on paper your own life story and that of your family? Uh, it was somewhat difficult. You know, I had grown up thinking that I wanted to be a writer. And when I thought about writing, I thought about writing this kind of thing, you know, that it would be much more personal. I hadn't thought of myself as as a historian per se, or writing the history and writing the history of other people, I thought it would be much more interior oriented um, writing. And, but it was difficult. I, I enjoyed it, but it was difficult to try to figure out how much I wanted to tell. What did I want to do? Did I want to use names of people? And I decided not to ultimately, other than my mother and my father and my brothers. Um, how much how how much detail did I want to go into because I didn't I wanted it to be about me but I didn't want it to be about only me I saw my family story as a frame through which to talk about Texas the history of Texas and in some ways well in most ways we're all part of history you know it's not history is not just about you know it's not Jefferson I mean I, I write about famous people uh, but we're part of history. My family, my family was shaped by the history of Texas. And I wanted to be able to tell that story in a way that would make people think about their own families, in their own states, in their own places, how their family histories are shaped by the events around them. So it was difficult to step outside of that and because I'm used to writing about other people's families and all the intricacies of other people's families. Uh, it was fun. I found out things about my family that I didn't know. Uh, I found my great, great grandfather on a voter registration list in 1867. And I had not thought about 
Well, I mean, I thought in general terms about what it must have been like for them, but some a document like that, that to my mind expresses a hope. This is 1867. This is right after the end of slavery. And here's the person, here's a man who says, now I am a citizen of the United States. I'm a citizen of Texas. I am going to participate in the political process. I mean, seeing something like that, rather than thinking about it in abstract, seeing a concrete thing like that really brings it home to me and makes me what makes me want to know to know much more about them and to try to, you know, piece together, maybe go back at some point and piece together more of this story, not just not for writing it, but certainly just for me to know more about it. How far back into Texas history were you able to trace your, both your mother and father's families? Well, on my mother's side, I was able to trace um, back to the 1820s um, because in the old censuses, they used to ask you where your parents were born. And my great-great-grandfather, born in 1845, says that his father was born in Texas. Um, so, I mean, he, unless he was a teenager, you can sort of presume that he must have been. Uh, the, the 1820s would be uh, a part at least the, you know, the latest that he could have likely have been a father. Uh, and uh, so it's a long time. My father's side, the 1860s. And that's, yeah. How much uh, family lore was passed down about those early generations and any connections to the plantation culture? Well, not nothing except, you know, on my mother's side, my great-grandmother's mother was born in, in slavery and was freed as a small child uh, with her mother by her father, who was her owner, um, who was her enslaver, however you want to, 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 to cast that. Um, I don't hear many more stories about that other than it's the next generation that I hear about. My great grandfather who went, who had a cotton farm, he and my great grandmother, whom I knew, my great grandmother lived until I was 11. And one of the things I say is that, you know, it's young people are <laughs> miss so many opportunities because I would love to have talked to her. I, I wish I had talked to her more and listened to the things that she said that I kind of half paid attention to. Because when you're a kid, you're thinking about yourself and your interests. Um, but my great grandfather, who with my great grandmother had a cotton farm in East Texas, and he would go to Galveston to work on the docks on the off season, hire people to hire, you know, two young men to work with my grandma, my great grandmother and her, her daughters, one of my grandmothers, because their sons had died. And he would go off and work on the wharf and made enough money, you know, to pay these people at the same time had enough left over. Uh, it, it was it was profitable for him to do this, and I would and during this book I realized that there was a big black men working on the wharves in Galveston was a big deal. They had a union. Uh, it was a progressive place. I would love to know much more about that time period about Galveston and black people in that city where uh, it was a cosmopolitan place. It was the most important city in Texas at the time. When I grew up, you know, I thought about Galveston mainly as the beach, <laughs> the beach town. And 
the, the kind of couple of stories that I heard about my great grandfather living there. But I really, really want to try to piece together a few of the things that I know to try to find out more about it. So I guess what I'm saying is I didn't hear very much about plantation slavery, but it was the next generation of people that I heard that I have family stories about that I would now like to try to piece together into some kind of story that, if not, as I said, for writing, but just for myself. You know, if the people listening, if there's any lesson to be learned from that is in the digital age, it's very easy to sit down and record your family history. And even if your grandkids aren't interested now, someday they might be. So, <laughs> oh, they will be. They, yeah. Without question, they will be. That's the, that's the, I mean, for a historian, <laughs> you know, to think, oh my gosh, I had a source. What a source I had. And, and, you know, I, I didn't, and I half listened to what she had to say about it, but with the good thing about some documents that are that are present, I may I think I'm able I will be able to piece together some things. So you grew up in a town called uh, by the name of Conroe, Texas, and write that you had a good childhood, but you had family members who wouldn't visit Conroe because they thought it was too dangerous. Tell me about mm-hmm. tell me the story of Conroe and why they would see it as too dangerous. Well, Conroe had a reputation as a rough town racially and I, I suppose it still has that reputation it certainly had it, well into modern times it had that reputation um it was an oil town uh and a town that a, a sawmill town at some point in the 1930s it was listed as having more millionaires and than any other town in the, in the country or something like that because of its its connection to uh to oil um but it had this trouble racial history there had been lynchings in Conroe. Uh, A man had been burned at the stake. A man was burned at the stake on Courthouse Square in the 1920s. Uh, A man had been killed during a court, during a trial. A black man had been shot by a white man in front of the judge, the jury and police and everybody and the person was acquitted. Uh, There were just things like that that made the town seemed not like a place that blacks wanted to to stay, and some relatives would not of mine would not spend the night. They'd come to visit, but they wouldn't spend the night in Texas because they thought they never knew what was going to happen. But also, I think it was probably more just on principle. Uh, they were so disgusted by some of the things that had happened in the past that they it was important for them to make this kind of gesture, this kind of protest uh, of the town. Um, you know, I grew up, and I, you would—you said it. I, I think I had a happy childhood. It was a town where we rode our bikes and you know walked around barefoot as kids. Uh, schools out, shoes off, uh, and we wandered around places, and you know, neighbors looked after us. And it was sort of a world that's probably gone, except in a few places, maybe. In, in, in the country, but there was always this undercurrent of, of a racial problem. Um, I talked about, there were about in the book, and I could count stories of going into stores where the shopkeepers were very unkind, were not, didn't want us there in a sense. Uh, they wanted our money, but were unkind to us and I could tell as even as a small child that this was racially based. I ended up uh, integrating the schools of our of our town 
when I went to first grade as, as a six-year-old, and that was um, a fraught situation um, because of race. So in my community, there was safety and the kinds of, you know, idyllic is too strong a word, but I mean, but yeah, almost kind of childhood. I had, you know, my mother and my father, there was stability, you know, as a little kid and uh, things were fine, but around us, I could, you could sense attention um, because the racial situation was very, very, uh, as I said, suggested fraught because of the town's history. Uh, we need to hear more of the story of you integrating the school uh, as uh, as you entered first grade because it was a particularly poignant part of your book. You uh, started school. You were born four years after Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, when you were ready to start school, your parents made the decision to send you to an all-white school under Texas's Freedom of Choice program. So what was the Freedom of Choice program? Uh, how did it operate, and how how controversial was the decision to send you to that school? Well, uh, the Freedom of Choice plan was a number of was one of a number of ways uh, school districts in the South and towns in the South sought to avoid the effects of Brown. One was sort of starting private academies and just taking their kids out of the schools, but this was a way of of dealing with the public school situation. And white parents were supposed to pick the white school for their children, and black parents would pick the black school. My mother and father decided to send me, to choose to send me to a white school instead of sending me to the black school. I had been there at Booker T. Washington, which went from K through 12. I had been there as a kindergartner in Mrs. Kilo's class, morning, morning child. Um, and no, actually, I was an afternoon child. I wanted to be a morning child, but I was an afternoon kid. Um, and they decided to send me to Anderson Elementary School, a white school, because, you know, and, and I say in the book, and I talked about a bit about the fact that their explanation for why they did this changed over time as they became more somewhat disillusioned, I should say, with the way integration had worked out. They became, the, the explanation was more pragmatic. They said, well, we knew that the court was going to strike down the freedom of choice plan eventually. And we wanted you in place when that happened. But I think looking back on it, I think, uh, and if I think about the times the things that they said at the time and the feeling that I had at the time was that this was sort of a mission that this was, I think they were much more idealistic in their decision-making than they let on later on when it was all about, pragmatic things, you know, oh, the, the court's going to strike this down. Or my father was saying, you know, I, I wanted you to go to a school. Whites had the elementary schools and the intermediate schools separated. All the kids were not together. And so I thought I wanted that for you. I wanted an elementary school for you. And which, you know, I guess makes sense in a way. But I don't think that that's really what compelled them at the time, because this was in the, the height 64, 65, we're talking about the Civil Rights Act. We're talking about the Voting Rights Act. This was high tide for the civil rights movement. And I think they saw themselves as a part of this. So it was a, an important decision for them to make. My mother taught in the uh, 
the black school. She was a teacher there in Booker T. Washington. <coughs> Excuse me. And she, you know, there was some backlash because people thought, you know, why are you sending your kid to a white school? Don't you think that our schools are good enough? And that wasn't it at all. You know, she thought that, I, I believe she thought that this was the thing to do. For six-year-old you, though, I mean, you describe in the book the experience as being intense and that sometimes you broke out in hives. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you to uh, be the only black child in an all-white school? Well, I would say, you know, you look back on things. Human, human beings are funny. We look back at moments and you see only the good things, right? I, I focus more on the fun things that happen more than the unfun things that happen. I would say Mrs. Mrs. Daughtry, my first grade teacher, and Mrs. Gilliland, my second grade teacher, the formative years were wonderful to me. And writing the book, and actually after writing the book, it occurred to me, oh, I wonder if part of why they were so extraordinary was that they felt a kinship because my mother was a teacher. Knowing that I, you know, I was the child of, of a teacher, I wonder if that made a difference to them. But they were very helpful and supportive of me. I never felt anything but their support. Um, some of the kids were not great. I think some of them, you know, went out, well, some of them went out of their way to be nasty to me. Others went out of their way to be nice to me. I remember a group of girls who were very, very poor. I could tell they were poor because their mother, I mean, they wore the same clothes and, over and over and their mother had, or someone had had some material and she'd sort of made them all dresses out of the same material. And they would always, for the time they were there, make sure at recess that they would recess, they would come over and have me play with them or whatever. Uh, get me to play Red Rover or Ring Around the Rose, or whatever they were playing. So I learned that white people were not all the same. But I also learned, I, and I knew before then, that there was a racial problem, that white people, for whatever reason, didn't like black people. And I never thought, I should say, that this was my fault. <laughs> I never thought there was anything wrong with me. I thought there was something wrong with them. And I couldn't figure out it was an interesting, I think that interested me in this whole question of race. What is this? You know, what is this reason that, that I consider myself to be a nice person and, you know, I've, uh, I'm, I'm friendly and I'm open uh, and there are people who on site hate me because of who I am. And that intrigued me because, as I said, I, it was not anything that I did or anything I was doing. And... I think that probably started me on a lifelong interest in the question of race and what it's all about. And, you know, is there any way around it? By the way, so, I'm just wondering whether or not you, you ever heard from your first and second grade teacher when they saw the success that you'd become with your life. I don't know that they're living. I have heard from uh, other teachers uh, from high school teachers and people who were who were younger at the time, but uh, I don't know that they are that they are still living because they were somewhat older 
at, at the time when I was there. So I, I think it's probably, I, I probably doubt, I doubt that they are still alive. You write in the book that your integration in that school helped put in motion changes to the racial dynamics in my town. Can you talk more about that? Well, yes, um, and, and good ways and bad ways. Uh, one of the things that I talk about is that I received hostility not just from some whites, but from some blacks as well. Booker T. Washington had been the focus of the black community in that town. The teachers lived in the same communities as the students. They were their relatives. Their parents may socialize together. Uh, it was a close-knit operation. And they were none too happy when three years after I went to this school, to Anderson, the Supreme Court actually did strike down uh, the freedom of choice plans. And uh, everybody had to change schools. And there were a number of African-American kids who sort of collapsed the story and they sort of made it as though I was the impetus for all of this. I had not put all this in motion. The courts put this in motion and people took it out on me. I, I, I recall um, being, well, as I said, in, talk about in the book, a guy hitting me repeatedly, someone who I didn't even know who this guy was. And it was just this surreal experience because, you know, why is he doing this? I don't know who you are. And other people who were very hostile to me because they thought that I had put, I was the reason for all of this and I wasn't uh, the reason for it. So one of the things that, the other things that happened that, and I think this is one of the, the causes of the disillusion of my parents, and this happened all over the South, is that there was integration of the children, but not integration of the power structure in the sense that sometimes teachers were removed from the classroom, black teachers, um, or made administrators or weren't given the power. They lost the power that they had when they were in charge of their own schools. And so it was, it was integration. It's like Blackstone's comment about husbands and wives. The two become one and the one was him. Uh, it was integration, but now we're on the, it was on the terms of whites. So, you know, but on the other hand, if I go back to my hometown now or when I've gone back over the years, it's much, the social situation is much calmer in the sense that you can go to stores and you can sit where you want to sit in the movie theater. Um, but, you know, this, this question of black control of schools, even though now there are black principals, I should say, uh, the school, the town has changed uh, enormously in, in some ways, but the, the kind of close-knit community-oriented thing was lost during that time period. Not romanticizing it, uh, uh, segregation, but there was a loss. Some people did feel a loss because of this. One of the other things that you, you noticed changed, not only has the population exploded, but the uh, pristine and heroic Texas history that you were taught as a young person is now uh, much more filled with the narratives that you and I talked about at the earlier part of our, our conversation. Uh, what, what, what is the importance of that, and what do you think, it, how it, does it impact the children who are going through schools today compared to when you went through school? Well, I think kids today will have a more realistic picture of Texas history. 
And I think that's all to the good. I say in the book that we sometimes need mythology. Uh, apparently we do because every nation, every place does it. I mean, we have our, our founding myths, whether it's the United States or, or Texas, but you have to deal with the history of it. And we'll think about heroes and heroism in different ways now. It, it's not just about, I end the book saying, you know, it's not just about you could love something, loving something doesn't mean, or caring about something doesn't mean that you have to think that everything about it is perfect and not see the flaws, not see the struggle. I think you, you really sell it short. I mean, you, you, you're selling the place short when you don't recognize the struggle, the effort it took to get us to a place where Juneteenth could be a holiday, uh, a state holiday, or where Blacks can now vote, even though that's become a contentious issue again. Um, you have to see that this is a continuing struggle. So I, I think that that kids today who have this broader vision of what this was about and will see how hard it is to maintain or to sort of get and maintain a Texas that is open and free and equal for everybody, regardless of their race. So. I'm hoping that the realism, that new realism doesn't mean that you, you turn your back on the place. It just gives you more reason uh, to be vigilant and to work to try to perfect it as much as you possibly can. A more perfect union, a more perfect Texas or whatever, it doesn't, you can't get that if you hide from the truth. You, one phrase that you wrote in the book is that the American story is endlessly complicated. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about how complicated it is just this weekend, rereading your book in preparation for our conversation. Uh, so many things were going on. The Texas legislature was meeting in a, a memorial weekend session on voting laws in Texas. The nation mm -hmm. was celebrating Memorial Day to commemorate the many mi millions of lives lost over our history in, in service to the ideals of our country. Uh, and we also celebrated the, or commemorated the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. All of this mm -hmm. going on at once, such complicated parts of American history. Ultimately, um, if you kind of step back and take the 3,000-foot view of this, are you hopeful about this country and its complicated threads all coming together? Wow. You know, I wax it, it waxes and wanes. Uh, I have to be optimistic because I have kids <laughs> and hope to have grandchildren someday. Um, you know, I, I'm optimistic because I think people are being vigilant. I mean, people are awakened to the problems that we have. I mean, there was the, the walkout <laughs> the other day to, to stop these. It, it will come back. But I'm pessimistic because we have to do this. I don't understand why at this late date that people don't understand or don't believe that in a republic, uh, which is a form of democracy, uh, that people should vote. Eligible people should be allowed to vote. It shouldn't be impediments to voting. Um, the fact that people seem to see this, that you need to do this on the basis of race is a, is a problem that is depressing to me. But I was heartened by the participation of people in the, during the last election. And I don't think that's a genie that, that can be put back in the bottle. Uh, we're going to find a way to do this, to exercise rights as citizens. And the fact that 
people came out in such large numbers and that people are writing about it and focusing on these these issues makes me hopeful. But it, it is depressing to think that we still have to uh, fight some of these battles. It, it shouldn't be. Well, let's there's pre- room enough for everybody, you know, and there's enough to go around um, for all races and all people. And I just wish people would, would recognize that. What do you hope that your book on Juneteenth will do for the conversation we're having about race right now? Well, I hope it will make people realize that this is the connection between history and today, that this didn't, we didn't come to this point from nowhere, uh, that there is a history, there are, there are, there's a path to this point and a path that people deliberately chose. And I hope the book suggests that we can do different things, that we are not, nothing is written, um, that nothing is inevitable. And I hope that the book talks about the struggle of a group of people to make a better life in a place that was inhospitable uh, and the hope that they had. So I hope that it will inspire people to realize that we can control our destiny if we are active people, if we pay attention. Is the discussion about making Juneteenth a federal holiday an active one? Is there legislation in Congress to make it official? I think so. It is. Yeah, I I spoke with Miss Opal Lee, who is a centenarian, who has been made this her uh, her uh, crusade for the past few years. And yes, I think there's a possibility it will be. It's not something that I had thought about real much when I was when I was writing the book, uh, but it sounds like a good idea to me. And finally, as we close, what's your next book project? I'm doing a second volume of the Hemings family story. Uh, so I will be talking about the Hemingses in the 19th century when, and during the Civil War. When uh, one goes to Monticello, how do you feel about the, re- the recalibration of Thomas Jefferson's history based on your scholarship? I like it. I think they've done a very, very good job. And I should say, we, I'm on the board of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. So, but they, all of these things were done before I, I, I got there on the board. But uh, I, I think they're doing a very, very good job. And it's a place for people to come and learn about Thomas Jefferson, but also learn about the United States and the history of the United States. So it's a, it's a valuable, I mean, you learn valuable lessons in a place that some people might write off, but we can go there and discover who we really are as a people. Annette Gordon-Reed's latest book is called On Juneteenth. Thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.